Let's begin with a word of prayer, church, as we come before God. Father in heaven, we can say, God, it is well with our souls because we know you. Whether in good times or in bad, God, it is always truly well because Jesus Christ, God, came to die on the cross for our sins and we have hope a secure hope of a life forever with you. But God, while we live in this world, I know that we are challenged, oh God, all the time by our culture and the things around us, God, to live for what the world says is important and not what you say is important. So Father, I pray, oh God, that as we gather as your people, God, to hear your word today, God, that you would challenge our hearts with your word, oh God, to think to think deeply, O oh God, about how you would have us live and honor the name of Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our eyes again today to see the wondrous things that are in your law. I beg and I ask for your help, God, to speak today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, church, I want to begin by thanking all of those of you who were praying for me. Uh, at the youth conference over this last weekend. It was wonderful to see like 150 young people come together in the Bellingham area, just anxious about worshiping Jesus and hearing about God and His Word. And you know, the conversations I had after, so many of them were just so uplifting to have young people who were just weeping about how they want to give their lives to Jesus and to, um, you know, not be conformed to their culture, but to live differently. I was really encouraged by that, and I, I really think that it's, it's the result of God's people's prayers that such things happen. Not a single one of us has the ability to move God, but God says we pray to Him. He will answer. He hears from heaven our prayers even before we ask. As I was preparing the message for the conference, so after spending Friday night together with the students, I just had this sense of, like, I, I can't preach actually what I've written, so I stayed up all night, actually, and rewrote my entire message. And, and after rewriting, I was like, you know what? I also need to change what I'm going to do on Sunday, you know what I mean? Because I think I need to share this on Sunday as well with our, with, our, with our people. So what I'd like to do today, actually, as we continue on in the topic of Christian worship, I'd like to talk about how the culture affects our ability to worship God. And the topic that I was given for the conference was life in a let-it-go culture, following Jesus and not your emotions. And when it comes to the worship of God, it engages our emotions as well. And my question for us today, are the emotions that we have God-centered and molded by the Word of God, or are they largely molded by our culture? What do you and I actually get excited about? Because that affects how we worship God. Now, this idea of letting it go is, I would say, the reigning paradigm and the de facto view of our culture today, not just for young people, but for people all over North America, and I would argue as well, even in the Christian church. That's the reason, I think, why we have many difficulties sometimes in a laissez-faire church atmosphere where people say, you have no right to tell me what to do. It's between me and God and the Bible. And generally what they mean by that, it's also my own interpretation of the Bible, pastor, so you have no right to speak to me about what to do. And if you don't like it, I'll find another church that will let me do that. You know, it runs, it's so ingrained and deep in our culture. You know, if you want to understand just how we have gotten there and why we think that letting it go and being ourselves is the only way to live, 
you just actually have to look at Disney. Disney is a cultural juggernaut, a titan in terms of being a producer of culture and also affirming and explaining how culture actually thinks. You know, there's one writer who wrote about what Disney actually is, and they said this, Disney not only reflects what audiences want to see, but it also sets standards of acceptable behavior that are followed around the world. For generations, Disney films have forged childhood memories and implicitly and explicitly taught everyone, children and adults alike, how to live. You think that you're singing just the circle of life, but what actually you're singing is a worldview. You know, Disney, in their genius, actually reads what our culture values, looks down the road and sees, hmm, what is our culture most likely to accept next? And is this good for us in terms of where we want to move the culture? Does it help us sell things? Is this what we want to do? And then what they do is they make a movie about what the culture likes, and then they teach other people in the culture who are not quite there to do the same. And you can see this, actually, the progression of culture as you look through the history of Disney's vaults and the way that their films have changed over time. So, for example, if you look at the Disney Princess Collection and you think about how the princesses have evolved, you really get a snapshot of what culture was like 70 years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago, and now. So seven years ago and 50 years ago, when you looked at generation one of Disney princesses, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, guess what they all have in common? They all sing, they have animals around them, they are good with a broom, they're the housewife uh, type, they cook really well, you know, and, and you wonder, it's like, why, why is that? And the reason that those princesses were created is because they reflected the 1930s, 40s, and 50s view of women. Now, you remember, in those days, women were not in the workplace, and women were largely at home. As a result of that, the way that women lived and compared each other had everything to do with the home. So the idea of being a stereotypical you know, housewife who was excellent around the home came out in Disney's portrayal of their princesses. You know, you think about the way that people thought about women. You can read a 1950s manual that I found on what it means to be a good wife, and one of the advices is this, don't ask him questions about his actions or question your husband's judgment or integrity. Remember, he is the master of the house and as such will always exercise his will and fairness and truthfulness. You have no right to question him. You know, you, you read stuff like that today and you go, how on earth do people ever think that way? Could you imagine sharing advice like that today? You'd be shot, hung, you know, quartered. But that was the culture of the 1930s and the 1950s. That was normal. To go against that, you know, would have gotten you shot. I think 1950s, Cinderella would have no problem with that statement because that's how people thought in those days. You fast forward afterwards to generation two of Disney's princesses, uh, Ariel from The Little Mermaid, Belle from Beauty and the Beast, and you look at Princess Jasmine from Aladdin, you suddenly see girls actually who don't fit the mold of their culture anymore, and they follow their dreams, and what happens is they end up meeting a guy that they really like, and though there's conflict, they end up living happily ever after. You want to summarize what Generation 2 of Disney was teaching the culture, it was this. Be true to yourself, not what society wants of you, and you will find true love, and you will be happy at the end of the day. Now, that was just 20 years ago. I grew up on films like that. 
The new generation of Disney princesses, I would categorize as Generation 3, have evolved actually yet again. Merida from Brave, you know, you have Elsa from Frozen and Moana. I think, you know, they, they bring with them a different kind of flavor. I think you really see that, for example, in Merida and Brave, when the suitors arrive to shoot for her hand and whoever wins the archery contest gets to marry the princess, and she yells in her Scottish accent, I'll be shooting for me own hand. And she takes the bow and basically shoots for herself and says, I win, so I marry myself. You know, all of them communicate this idea, you know, that the problem is other people around you who hold you back from being what you want, what you should be, who you really are. And what you need to do to be happy is to get free. Don't listen to the criticisms of other people, their expectations, their thoughts about you. Believe in yourself and you'll be happy. And you can see this in the hit song you know, of Disney's Frozen, Let It Go, 1.7 billion views on YouTube. And you just listen to some of the lyrics, right? Don't let them in, don't let them see, be the good girl you always have to be, conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. And then it's time to test what I can do to test the limits and break through, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go, right? Question, do you know why this song resonates with our culture? The reason that this song is so appealing is because it is actually the worship song of the hidden religion of secular people including atheists in our culture. Atheists in our culture actually have a religion, and the words of this song are actually based on their favorite scripture. It comes from the Gospel of Elsa, chapter 3, verse 16. Elsa 3.16, for short. And if I were to summarize it, it, it basically is this. It says, Elsa 3.16, Be true to yourself. Don't let anyone hold you back. Right and wrong is yours to define, and you don't need to be married to be happy. And the sheep of this world who have grown up on Disney hear this, they hear their master's voice, and they clap, and they say, amen, that feels so right. See, the, 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 the true religion of our culture is something that I think Paul Miller, who is the uh, director and leader of See Jesus, a global missionary, mission discipleship program, has rightly, I think, identified as feelism. He writes this, our age is defined by a kind of emotivism. Feelism drives emotions to the center, distorting and amplifying them until how does this make me feel becomes the measure of truth. So when something causes me to feel bad, I judge it as wrong for me. Feelism suggests that anything causing us anxiety, pain, or discomfort is wrong. Now, I think Miller has nailed it, actually, in his understanding of the culture. The vast majority of North Americans are actually worshipers of feelism. And this religion has its own set of scriptures and doctrines, like Elsa 3.16 that I just read. And it runs counter to many of the religious practices and cultural practices of people around the world outside North America. It's very hard to see it, though, if you live in this culture. Now, if you have immigrant parents, like I know many of you actually do, also in our church, like many of the kids did when I was speaking yesterday, you actually get a front row seat to the clash when you think about what your parents would say compared to what you might say or your friends might say. Like, immigrant parents would never say things to their children like, 
don't go to college, you don't need it, but the most important thing is just follow your dreams and be happy. Like, immigrant parents would never say that. They would never look at their daughter and say, like, oh, marriage is so overrated. Don't you think that uh, as long as two people love each other, they can live with each other and sleep together? I'd never hear that from immigrant cultures. They always value marriage. Or like, son, like your mother and I moved here to this country and worked so hard so that you could grow up to be a rapper. Why do you disgrace us by becoming a dentist? You never hear that. I've never heard that before from an immigrant parent. And the question is, why? It's because immigrant parents and cultures around the world are not feelists. Their religion is cultural traditionalism. They value dollars over dreams. They value commitment over casual sex. And they value professionalism over profanity. So to them, the doctrines of feelism that they observe in our culture aren't liberating. They're actually horrifying to them because they're short-sighted and sensual and selfish. You know, in our culture, North American culture, we say we divorce when we fall out of love. And we think it's right to do that. But you know, if you were to talk to an ancient Chinese person who is steeped in Confucian thinking and values, what do you think they might say to you about that? They would probably actually rebuke you and stroke their beard and shake their head at you and then quote to you a Chinese proverb, which means, a rough translation, every person, common person, is responsible for the rise and fall of their country or their society. Basically what they're saying is that, how dare you divorce? Don't you know what's most important in society is not your feelings and what you want out of things? The common person is responsible for how a nation rises and falls. So if you selfishly decide that you are going to prize your feelings, your love over the good of your children, the good of your village, the good of your country, you're destroying us. How dare you? How dare you prize yourself over others? You see how collectivist thinking is? It's very different. You know, I heard that Disney also was remaking the movie uh, Mulan. And Mulan's 1998 version in Disney is a story about a, a girl who steals her father's armor to go and fight in his place in the war uh, to, to save him. And at the end of the movie, basically, she saves her country, uh, the emperor, and uh, becomes a hero, and uh, she falls in love, you know, with a, with a captain. What's interesting, actually, about the 1998 Mulan movie is that there are many versions of the Chinese uh, story of Mulan, but not a single one of them actually matches the Disney version. The Disney version is actually a fabrication that was created to suit North American audiences. The real story doesn't go like that at all. Actually, most of you probably don't know, but in 2009, some 10 years after that, there was a live-action Mulan uh, that was released in China. So the movie that's coming out next year, Mulan, is not the first live-action movie, but there was a Chinese production of Mulan. And it's very interesting when you look at the Chinese version of Mulan, how the story goes. Yes, she fights you know, in the kingdom, she, in the war, you know, there's battles and stuff, comes out a hero at the end of the day. But the way that the, that movie ends, as I was reading over the plot and, and looking at it, was that after she's done her duty to her country and she's there with the, with the other guy whom she falls in love with, he actually is required to marry a princess from another kingdom in order to stave off any future wars, you know, so that there would be peace between the kingdoms. But he basically says to her, like, I want to elope with you, you know, let's, let's love each other, let's, let's not do this. And she turns and says to him, basically, 
we can't do this because there will be more bloodshed and violence. As much as I love you, it is more important for the country to let you go. And so the movie ends with that, with her heroic and noble sacrifice. If you come from a traditional collectivist culture, you will look at the ending of that movie and say, that's right. That's really good. That's what you should look for in a woman. Here's, here's my point in all of this. Why do you think the way that you do? Why does Elsa 316 resonate with, with you? Why does the Disney ending of Mulan resonate with our culture instead? It's because our culture has taught us a way to think. And though we think that this is the way everybody should think, and this is an absolute truth, the truth is it's just culturally manufactured. It's not absolute. We think our views are right and that we came to these things on our own, but the truth of the matter is we're really just conforming to the culture around us that has taught us how to think. It's very difficult to see out of the box. You know, I think one of the best ways to understand how difficult it is to see outside of the box is to talk about what's called the hipster phenomenon. You know, in our culture, hipsters actually were people who rebelled against culture and did everything that culture did not like. In fact, I read somewhere that the mark of being a hipster is to wear something you hate. So hipsters basically looked at clothing like polo shirts and they said, forget, I'm wearing a V-neck. You know, everybody eats peanut butter and jelly, but I'm going to eat avocado toast instead. You know, the irony of hipsters is that in trying to be unique, they actually end up conforming and looking like each other instead. And there's proof for this. You know, I found this paper by a mathematics professor named Jonathan Taboul at a university who published uh, in a mathematics journal his, his work called The Hipster Effect When Anti-Conformists All Look the Same. And in a nutshell, Dr. Taboul demonstrated that though hipsters initially acted randomly, they eventually went through a phase transition into a synchronized state. Now, in English, what that means is that they started rebelling against their own culture, but over time they ended up copying each other and becoming their very own culture. And the most crazy part about his research was is that for the people who are in the movement, they have a real hard time seeing that they are actually part of another culture. He pointed out basically that if you, the closer a hipster was to another hipster, the less likely they were to think that the other person was a hipster. You know, the deal is if you're in a system, you're a fish that swims in the water of your own culture, it's very hard to see that you're actually in the water. The funniest proof of this came actually when the MIT Technology Review picked up on this and they published an article affirming Dr. Taboola's work. And they posted a picture of a hipster, you know, with a plaid shirt and, you know, a toque on his head, very, very stereotypical and a beard. And as soon as the article was published, a man emailed them and accused them of slandering him and using his image without permission to make a point actually about hipsters. Now, MIT, wanting to avoid a lawsuit, went to quickly check the source of this image that they had gotten from a stock publisher, a uh, stock photo company, and they realized that the name of the model in that image it was not the same as the man who was accusing them of slander. And so they brought this to the man's attention, and the man, after reviewing the facts, conceded that he had made a mistake, and it wasn't him, and he withdrew his lawsuit from them. Why it's so funny is that Dr. Taboola's paper is full of advanced mathematics. It's very difficult to read. But his, what, he, what he concludes, you know, at the end of the day, really is the same as, I think, the conclusion you draw from this case of mistaken identity in the picture. 
It took him dozens of pages of mathematics to prove that anti-conformists in the end all look the same and create their own culture. But this dude, by emailing MIT, proved that fact in a matter of minutes by mistaking a photo of another hipster for himself. It's ridiculous, actually. So here's my point. Number one, your, your beliefs are actually conditioned by your culture, and you don't even know it. You don't. You might not actually believe me right now that it's true. You're like, no, I, I believe what I do because I'm an independent thinking person. I'm like, no, no, you're not. If you were, most likely you would be really weird talking with everybody else right now. And this thinking, though, the cultural thinking, is problematic, especially when it runs counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what I'm saying to you is that you hold beliefs that you don't even know that you hold. So the question for us as Christians, you know, or people, is just, how do I know what I actually believe? I say I believe certain things, but how do I actually know what I believe? How do I see into that? And this is why I think emotions are actually key to understanding things. Emotions, I would argue, actually show you the hidden beliefs of your heart. Like, imagine that a person, a man receives a phone call that his wife basically has been in an accident two minutes away from his, his house. So he hops into his car, and he drives over to the place, and he sees his wrecked car and his wife standing there. And he looks at her and yells, sweetheart, and runs over to her, and he hugs her, and his wife says, honey, it's okay, like, I'm, I'm safe how do you think a woman will feel? I mean, she's not consciously processing this, but she'll hug him back in her heart. She'll, she'll smile because she'll feel happy knowing that my husband treasures and loves me more than anything else in the world. I always believe that, and I feel that even now. But imagine if the same man yelled, sweetheart, and he ran to her and then passed her to the car and then fell down next to the car and started saying, you only had like 10,000 kilometers on you. You were barely six months old. Your life ended way too quickly. And just cried his eyes out. How do you think his wife would feel? I think her reaction would be very different at that point. I think there'd be anger. There'd be sadness. I think she'd yell at him and say, what are you thinking? How what's important in your life? You know the reason that she'll be crushed? The reason she's crushed is actually in, in a span of five seconds, the beliefs of her heart have actually been rewritten. When the day started, her belief was, my husband loves me more than anything else in the world. But after that accident and her husband running to the car, that belief was rewritten to be, my husband loves me more than anything else in the world except his car. The first one is a reason for rejoicing. The second one is a reason to cry. And you can't control it. You feel what you feel based on what you believe and what you believe about reality. It's devastating, right? So what are emotions? Emotions are reactions based on what we believe to be true. And they are windows actually into our soul. And they show us, if we're willing to read them, the secret functional beliefs of our hearts. And they show us where our treasure actually lies. So if you're a man and you love doing business, perhaps you spend long hours working at your business. Maybe you, you, you like vacationing or you have a hobby that you do and you give little to the Christian church because 
you just say you have no time. I would say maybe you have a functional belief that is gospel deficient. Maybe actually what you believe is the translation of Luke chapter 12, verse 15 from the Bible of theism, And that reads, for one's life consists in the abundance of his possessions. Or perhaps for girls and ladies, you're absolutely terrified to go out uh, without your makeup on. And, and if it debilitates you, perhaps what is happening is you have a functional belief in the feelism version of 1 Peter 3, verses 3 to 4, which reads, Let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, which in man's sight is very precious. You see, it's so close to the ESV, just kind of in the negative. It's understandable how you can make a mistake. Or perhaps like your big thing is entertainment, Netflix, YouTube, Facebook. Well, perhaps what you like instead or believe is Feelism's translation of Psalm 23. I've shared this with a number of you before. It goes like this. The TV or entertainment is my shepherd, I shall not want. It makes me lie down on the sofa. It leads me away from the scriptures and it damages my soul. It leads me in the path of sex and violence for the sponsor's sake. Yea, though I walk in the shadow of my Christian responsibilities, there will be no interruption for TV, for the TV is with me. It's cable and it's remote control. They comfort me. It prepares a commercial before me in the presence of my worldliness. It anoints my head with humanism. My coveting runneth over. Surely laziness and ignorance will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in my house watching TV forever. My question is, Christians, is that you? Which translation of the Bible do you read? I'm not talking about the one that you carry or the one that we use here in the pews of the church. I'm talking about the one that's actually in your head. What do you live by? Do you live by like an ESV that you read, English Standard Version? Do you live by the feel SV, the feelism standard version? And do you know how you can find out what you actually live by? Don't blindly follow your emotions. Stop and read them. I know that people in our culture often say, don't just stand there, do something. I think the reverse is true for Christians. Don't just do something. Stand there and think first about why you do what you do. And when you stop and look at your emotions and you read them and look into the window in your own soul, what do you see? Do you see Christ there at the center of the throne of your heart? Or do you see something else there which is not Christ? You know, the problem is with the let it go culture and this feelism movement it's that feelism just preaches to you, if it feels good to you, it must be true. So go and do it. Feelism does not tell you to stop and think of the things that you hold in your heart. Question them whether or not they really are true. So let me ask you a question. You might have been coming to church for I don't know how long. Are you actually a functional feelist? There are many atheists who deny that they are religious, but as I've just shown from here, many are actually feelists. And what scares me the most is I think there are many in the church in North America who profess to be Christians but are functionally feelists as well. 
When it comes to a conflict between God's word and what it says and what I want to do, guess what wins all the time? What I want to do. Maybe you're a fealist, actually, and you have been for years. Or maybe you're a Christian that's backslidden and you are serving and being in fealism right now. And if that's you, I want to offer you hope today that you don't have to live that way and there's a better way to live. Jesus is better and Jesus can free you from that culture that you are a slave to and give you a life you could never have imagined. Four things I'd like to say about how to deal with our world-conditioned beliefs that we barely know we have. Okay, number one, saturate your heart and your mind thoroughly with the Word of God. One of the scriptures that I love the most comes from Proverbs 14, 12, which says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of to death. And why I like that so much is because it is a nail in the coffin of the doctrines of fealism. Just because something feels good doesn't mean it's good. According to this verse, it might actually kill you at the end of the day. And I think the Proverbs here are talking about eternal death here. So right and wrong for me doesn't work. If you go to another culture, for example, and another extreme religion, a suicide bomber who destroys himself for God, receives approval from his culture, feels right for him to do it. But is it right? Absolutely not. He's wrong. Just because it feels right doesn't mean it's right. And do we have things like that in our culture that feel right to do, but another culture or God himself will look at and say, that's absolutely wrong. Sin is always appealing. That's the nature of sin. People often say, how can it be sin if it feels so good? How could sin work if it wasn't appealing to you? You know, the devil is described in 2 Timothy 2.26 as laying snares for people to trap them. He's a master hunter who's had thousands of years of experience trapping humans and killing them. If the devil and humanity have been around, let's say, for 5,000, 6,000 years and a PhD takes four years to get, then the devil has the equivalent of 1,200 PhDs in studying human behavior and killing people. He's an expert. To the lonely, he offers illicit sex. To the power-hungry, he offers them success and money. To the proud, he offers them fame and adoration. All those things feel good. He offers us things that align with our corrupted desires. Now, remember, if our emotions are the result of our beliefs, then the way to fight against this, church, against the pull of these strong emotions and the temptations of the devil, is not to just hunker down and say, I've got self-control, I can deal with this, is actually to change your beliefs, to change fundamentally what you believe on the inside. And then such things, though they are dangled in front of you, will no longer hold their appeal. That's actually how the scripture commands us to fight. Romans 12, 2 says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be renewed by the, transformed by the renewal of your mind. So Christianity, unlike every self-help book and the religions of this world that says, be tough, Christianity says, no, be transformed. Be transformed by God's Word. You read the promises of God and believe them, not your emotions that have been conditioned by this world. They are not your God. And so when you lose friends, you lose family members, a lover or a job that you really like because 
of your choices to follow Jesus Christ, those things which should normally crush you, you can look at them and say, as Paul did, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You will only be excited by that if you believe this. And if you reorient your beliefs according to God's word and you lose everything else in this world that's of value to you, you will still be okay and you will be happy in God. Don't blindly follow emotions, but read them to know what is in your heart. And if what is in your heart does not align with the word of God, Take the word of God and say, God, stamp this onto my soul. Fill my heart with the scripture and help me to believe it. As I've said numerous times, the battle for the Bible generally is not just to read it, but actually to believe it. Number two, here. depend on God's spirit. Romans 8, 11 to 13 reads this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So this is how the logic of this passage works. If God's Spirit lives inside of you, then He'll give you life through His Spirit. Verse 12 then, if God's Spirit lives inside of you, you don't owe your passions or your flesh anything. You are not a debtor to your flesh. So when your flesh comes to you and says, I need sex, I need power, I need approval, I need fame, I need more money, you can look at that flesh and say, I owe you nothing. You don't own me. Jesus Christ bought me with his own blood out of the slave market of sin. I have a new master. He died on the cross for me and has given me new affections and a new heart. My heart beats for that. So you don't own me. Go away. And the one who lives inside of me is now greater than you. You know, verse 13 tells us to put to death the deeds of the body, and that includes emotions that are based off of beliefs in this world that are not godly. And you might look at that and say, how? I can't resist the pull. Do you know how strong the pull of that stuff is? And to that, God says, I know. That's why I'm telling you, it's not about exercising your own power, your strength, and killing it by your own might. It says, kill it by the Spirit if by the Spirit, not your strength, you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Now, what does that mean? I think that what it means for us is that we as Christians need to practice violence. Not a violence against other people, but a violence against our own sin. To kill it. When our emotions say, do this according to the world standard, you say, no. And you take the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. This is how you fight. And you cut back at it when it comes for you violently. So for men, for example, when you're tempted by the beauty of a woman who is not a God follower, doesn't have sound discernment, you can meditate on verses like Proverbs 11, verse 12. 
Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Very few people have ever quoted this verse to me. But basically what it's saying is that if you believe this, and you, the message of this in your heart, it's saying that a beautiful woman without Proverbs 31 godly character is just as odd and appealing to you as a gold ring is in a pig's nose. If you don't know it already, let me just explain it to you. Pigs are not attractive. And if you could really see what is there and you see the way God sees, you will look at the same thing that you saw before with your worldly eyes and say, it has the attractiveness to me as a gold ring in a pig's snout. Read the scriptures into your soul and then ask God to make it live. I want to believe this and not just read it with my eyes. I want to feel and believe these things. These are God's words and not my words. If the scriptures don't live in you, you might as well say to Satan, when the prowling lion comes around to you, just eat me, devour me whole. That's not for us as Christians. Take the sword of the Spirit and kill. Kill your sin. Stab it down the lion's mouth and the devil will flee. Number three, exhort God's people. Exhort God's people. Hebrews 3, 12 to 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is a very serious warning given to Christians saying that if you are not careful, you are in danger of giving up on Jesus and falling away from God. Now, there are times in our lives where the solution is to read your Bible and to pray that God would open your eyes to the truth that you might live for Him. But at other times, you're so hardened and deceived by your sin that actually what it takes is a brother or sister to come to you, to exhort you every day so that you can be cured of the hardness of heart that is in you because of your overwhelming sin. You know, God has arranged for the medicine of His Word, sometimes to not be self-administered, but rather to be administered to a brother or by a brother or sister next to you. Like uh, nurses, you know, a guy told me yesterday that he, w- he worked on the nurse's ward and said that basically, yeah, it's like anaphylactic shock. When you have a severe allergic reaction, it's not like you're gasping and looking for an EpiPen. You find somebody, somebody else sees it, they grab it, stab it into your thigh and save your life. That's what it's like sometimes. That's why the, you need the church. When you are going through that kind of shock in your life and you can't save yourself, you need a brother or sister in the church to come and deliver it to you. We owe our lives. God has built the church to work this way. We, we owe our lives to our Savior, but our Savior's work through each other as well. That's how important the church of Jesus Christ is. You know, I remember once ministering to a roommate, and I've told this story to a number of you before, who was so depressed in his exams, and, and he came out, and, uh, you know, wanted to talk to somebody, barely could able to t- talk to somebody. I knew he wanted to talk. And I said, I will cook, you read the Bible. And in his depression, he really didn't want to read the Bible, but I made him read the Bible because I knew it was good for him. So I said, you open up Job 38 and you start reading there. And so he read, but for the first little while, it was just dull and lifeless and nothing happened. He read while I prayed and I cooked. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you entered into the springs of the sea? Can you send forth lightning? This is God addressing Job. And then he got to the verse, Job 39, verse 1, which says, 
Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? And he stopped and he just repeated it. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? And then just like a light bulb went on, he says, no. No, I don't know. I don't know when the mountain goats give birth. Sam, I don't know, but God knows when the mountain goats give birth. And I looked at him and I said, yes, you have got it. If God knows when the mountain goats give birth, do you not think he knows exactly what is going on in your circumstances right now, your struggles with your exams, and that he is here with you right now? You don't know when the mountain goats give birth, but the God who loves you and saved you and called to called you to be his own, knows even little details like that. And oh, can you not trust your life to his sovereignty? Sometimes what it takes is a friend to grab you and point you to a scripture that you would normally read with dullness in your heart. But when the Spirit of God takes that verse and makes it alive, you'll rejoice and you will say, you God are amazing. I don't know when the mountain goats give birth. And you'll never see it in the same way again because God has spoken to your soul. Rest in his sovereignty. Number four, look to God's son. You know what's so significant about Jesus is that Jesus didn't live according to let it go. When Jesus prayed and he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, his prayer was, God, I want to let it go. I, let me go, God, but, but not my will be done, but yours. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Jesus could easily have called down 12 legions of angels to fight against them and kill his enemies, yet he did not let it go and use his power in that way, lest all of us be dead instead. When Jesus went on the cross and the Pharisees mocked him and said, save yourself, he could have said, all right, walked off the cross, nails get out, walk away, heal my wounds, fantastic. But he didn't do that. Why? Because you and I would be dead and God's plan of salvation wouldn't be accomplished. It would have been so much easier for Jesus just not to hold back his divine power and just let it all go and live how he wanted to live and all of you and I would be dead. You know, Jesus stood as our mediator on the cross, enduring the wrath of the Father. On that day, there was one person who let it all go, and that was God the Father. As he unleashed on his beloved son the, the wrath, the anger, and the devastation due for human sin, not on people who deserved it, but on the only one in the world who was undeserving of it. He crushed his own son so that we, by his wounds, could be healed. And for those of us who know Jesus, there's not a drop of condemnation left anymore. You and I are free. Church, this is why we love the gospel of Jesus Christ so much. The gospel frees you and I from having to try to build a name for ourselves, to defend our own reputations, to make much of ourselves. The gospel frees us to be able to say, I'm weak but I serve a mighty Savior, and when I am weak, I am strong in Him. The gospel tells you, you don't need to take revenge for the wrongs in your life. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, and I can leave it 
in His hands. I don't need to be driven by my rage. The gospel says, don't be afraid to go out in public because you don't look good. The gospel tells me, do you know what's ugly? It's not what's on your face, but it's the sin that's in your heart. And when you come to believe that, you will realize that God who cleansed me from my sin has made me more beautiful and perfect than I have ever been before. I may be burned horrifically because of a car accident and a tragic fire, but at the same time, I'm more beautiful truly on the inside than I have ever been. Doesn't the Bible tell us that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart? Well, heart is more clean and more beautiful than one that has the righteousness of Jesus over it. Brothers and sisters, my point today is this. We live in a culture that teaches us how to live, how to function, and how to think. The gospel frees us from this. Your emotions are not a GPS that you are to blindly follow. They are gauges. Gauges that are designed to show you what you really value in your heart. They are a merciful window of God given to you so you can look into the desires of your own soul and say, this is wrong. Jesus, I don't want this ugliness inside of me. Give me a new heart. Give me new desires. Make me new in you and help me to live for you, my King. All the cultures in the world, traditionalist cultures, feudalism cultures, individualistic cultures, have some things in them which are good, but none of them are absolutely right. There is only one culture that is right, and that is the culture of Christ. And may we be a people who have the culture of Christ stamped on our souls. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much, God, for giving us the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, if there are any of us here who have been just living according to the way that we want to, how we feel, I pray, Father, that you would just break our hearts and we repent of that. We repent of daring God to do things which we know go directly against your word, holding attitudes in our hearts, oh God, fiercely, because we don't want to, to, to give up on these things. We feel entitled and say, I want to punish other people for the way they've treated me. I pray, Father, that you would help us submit those things to the cross and look to your Son, who didn't let it all go so that we could be saved. Father, I pray, oh God, that you would break us and allow us not to live according to how our culture wants us to live, but to live according to the way Christ wants to live. Help us, God, in our church to build up a Christian culture and not to simply look like the world. God, would you in your mercy just enliven our hearts to talk about you and to delight in you. Help us to believe, God, your word and in your son. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.